everybody and welcome to the second mid-season episode of season four of Sequelizers. As always, I am your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me, my fellow Sequelizers, Matthew Stogden. Yo. Timothy Matum. Yo. Alec Plowman. Apologize to my mule. <laughs> wow. I wonder how many, like, usually we're pretty obvious with the references, like the over-the-top <laughs> Jurassic Park stuff. I wonder how many people will clue on that of, like, it's a mid-season episode. I wonder what the fuck Alec is talking about. Interesting. <laughs> so I as you may have guessed, Tim and I don't think our things are connected in the No, no, no. That, 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 <laughs> that throws you off even more. I'm just like, yo. Like, hmm. Is it pirates? <laughs> <laughs> if it ended with ho, it would have been. Yeah, ah. yeah. Matt, you should have set up the yo and then Tim finish you off with a hoe and then... Tim finishes you I'm off with a hoe quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say, didn't know it was that sort of party. Classic. It is, it is. Because it's not a normal episode of Sequelizers, that's why it's such a party. We're not necessarily <laughs> fixing bad sequels, we're going to talk about trilogies. And a particular type of trilogies, trilogies we enjoy. We're talking about, like, positive experiences in films it's very mm. unusual for us mm. oh my god usually we're like aside the cynicism yeah exactly yeah it's a nice like refreshing break for us to just refresh our movie love rather than fueling the movie hate for mm. once mm. and uh yeah like i said it's gonna be a good time yeah. enjoy it and just just chill out and talk about films we like it's be very lovely nothing to be fixed here well matthew well <laughs> mm. we shall see so yeah i guess the uh, ultimately, we, we were having this discussion a while ago, which is, could we think of a trilogy of films that had sustained the quality for all three? Because normally, in our experience, things tend to go downhill pretty sharpish at film number three. Mm. Or if not sometimes sooner, as film number Exactly, two. as mm. we've discussed many times. Yeah, we've hit uh, Godfather 3, Alien 3, we've hit multiple threes, mm. and mm. even part twos of trilogies we've even discussed on this show before. But yeah, it's an interesting thing for us to then talk about three that actually work together yeah. as a mm-hmm. consecutive kind of or thing. Or that, or that, re, re, that uh, keep up a certain level of quality. I think yes. that was the that was the challenge, wasn't it? Retention of quality throughout. Yeah, yeah definitely. Just like our goal as podcasters. Oh, ah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. I thought I, I thought our goal as podcasters was to achieve maximum water retention. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was why we were here. Okay. I think we like sequelizers really went downhill in the third season because that's when I came on board. Oh, <laughs> you increased water retention, Tim. I did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. I don't know how or why, but you did. Our our, uh, our film our film knowledge is shot, but our water retention levels are through the roof. This is like fucking Doctor Strange level or something. Like, like, <laughs> I am water. very I am very confused. <laughs> So basically, um, we had this discussion about um, trilogies and immediately a lot of, you know, ideas start coming around and think, well, there's actually quite a few that have a lot of solid installments. But then it started going down, like like all things when you categorize film, like genre or anything else, you start to get a few sort of Venn diagram-esque things that have a bit of crossover. You think, well, hang on, does this count? Does that count? So went through and sort of quantified, arguably, five types of trilogy. So, and then we're dealing with the first one specifically here. So what's the linear trilogy? So that's where one story with the same characters and or setting and it sort of carries on as you can follow it through. It still works kind of a standalone, but they sort of uh, thread through each other reasonably well. So, for example, the Godfather trilogy. Simple story. Mm -hmm. You have the non-linear trilogy. So that's films set in the same location, but with different non-crossover characters or events like Cube. 
because ah. cube, hypercube and cube zero, it's the location that binds them. The actual story, yes, okay, the incident's the same thing, but I mean, to a lesser degree, because it's not actually a trilogy, um, the first three Dawn of the Dead films, or sorry, the Night of the Living Dead films, mm-hmm. it's the oh, same right, universe, yeah. but different vignettes within it. Mm-hmm. You've got the thematic trilogy, which is one people seem to think of quite a lot as inverted commas trilogies, uh, which is the work of usually a director that links themes, ideas, and actors, but not characters, settings, or time periods. Like they've got the, uh, the Cornetto trilogy. Edgar mm-hmm. Wright, that kind of thing. So everyone thinks, oh, it's a trilogy. It's like, well, I mean, in the sense there's the same actors and same creators, but yeah. You then have most recently the episodic or integrated trilogy, which is films that follow a central narrative but require additional franchise or spin-off films to support. So for example, because immediately Jack came in like, well, Iron Man trilogy, Captain America trilogy, a great trilogy. Like, exactly. But yeah. can you watch them as standalones without the knowledge of everything that goes in and around it? Yeah, kind of we, we touched upon that. And like you said, I kind of jumped in there. Like Captain America is mm. one of my favorite like modern trilogies. Yeah, it's films, great. Because they just get better and better, in my opinion. Or Winter Soldier and Civil War are both on absolutely par, amazing and like some mm. of my favorite Marvel movies. But we very, you very quickly said like, okay, Captain America 1 stands alone. 2... Yeah, sure, you kind of expanded to the whole S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of thing. Civil War does not work without knowledge no, of Iron Man and a bunch of other shit, and suddenly there's a fight in an airport, and you need to know who half these people are at least to even mm-hmm. understand what's going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. Even Iron Man, because one and two are literally just straight after each other, but three is so linked into the PTSD with Avengers. You, you need to know what yeah. happened in Avengers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And finally, you have the other one, which is the expanded trilogy. And this is one of them we got with no ideas. Um, these are those that start as three films, but then are revisited later, with subsequent editions. So for example, one of the greatest trilogies of all time, which is now a great trilogy with a pretty good extra one. Uh, and that's like Toy Story, for example. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because um, that's had a, such a perfect ending. This is the, this is, a, a Toy Story always comes up in the sort of perfect trilogy. But the interesting thing about that last one, the expanded trilogy thing is, eventually, arguably, if any sort of studio comes back to a property, they all become that. <laughs> so that one's like- <laughs> it makes enough sort of, money, then yeah. eventually, yeah. So we're gonna try and go with just- milk it for money. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting because that's also a relatively recent phenomenon. Oh yeah, because it very much used to be. So, and coming back to what Jack said, one of the first things that came into my mind when we were talking about this was Mad Max. Mm. Oh yes. yeah, exactly. three great films, and now a fourth great film. Yeah, but it's that thing of it's strange to think that we got a Mad Max sequel like thirty years after the fact. That's yes, kind of entirely. Weird that we're in this. We're in this world now where people are doing that, where 20, 30 years after the fact, we're making films that are direct sequels rather than spiritual successes or remakes, be it Blade Runner 2049 or any yeah, of those kinds yeah. of mm-hmm. examples. Yeah. Jumanji now, a uh, big, oh, surprisingly God, about successful. About to have a trilogy mm. of Jumanji films. Yeah. I mean, that's mental, yeah. Oh, especially because so the first one is so very different to the yeah. next two. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also why we can't talk about John Wick, because there's already yes. a fourth one in the process yes. of being made, yeah. uh, even though those films are... Really goddamn good. Arguably, bloody amazing. Bloody amazing, mm. and probably get better with every one. I would say. Mm. I haven't seen three yet. I, but I, I really enjoy all of them, so I, I would say it's a it's a fair statement to say they are in different ways mm. unfolding incredibly nicely. Um, but yeah, it's always a difficult thing to say they get better or not. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess the other thing, of course, that we should mention is how you deal with Star Wars in this because. Star Wars is weird in that it's a series of trilogies that can kind of stand alone as yeah. trilogies. Seems to be a trilogy of trilogies. Yeah, trilogy of trilogies. <laughs> um, but I would argue, and we don't know how it's going to go with the third trilogy yet, but mm. I would argue that Star Wars doesn't count anyway because Return of the Jedi, while not a bad film, is an inferior film to Star Wars and Empire. I agree. Um, I think there are some issues there. 
uh, with that film. And while it's one of those weird things where objectively, um, I would probably say that Return of the Jedi is a three out of five, but I can never really say that because I watched those films when I was seven mm. and therefore Return of the Jedi for me is always a five out of five regardless of its <laughs> myriad flaws no I genuinely I, I feel the same thing because it is that sort of pang of nostalgia I mean but the thing is I think for me personally I would give the last half of uh, Return of the Jedi five out of five the first half a two <laughs> I or oh, interesting because I feel with Jedi and I, I'm not going to dive into this too much because this could be an sure, entire sure. episode in itself <laughs> I feel with Jedi first act is great middle act people stand around talking about what might happen in the final act yeah. and then the final act happens yeah <laughs> so it's a good opening it's a good ending and then it's uh, like half hour of nothing mm. in the middle <laughs> it just has some weird stuff in it anyway return of the jedi it's um it, it, the way that they made that film was weird there was lots of uncertainty True. about who was coming back and whether they were going to make more afterwards because mm. return of the jedi wasn't originally meant to tidy stuff up no it was meant to be the launch for the next trilogy that was going to happen immediately <laughs> afterwards but that what a world we would be living in yeah. if that happened can you but, imagine but that's something we should maybe come back to for a future episode oh, I agree. because we I could agree. talk about return of the jedi on its own for Ooh. a whole bunch of Very time true. there's a prophetic glimpse into the future there <laughs> a tantalizing tease oh a tantalizing tease and what i would also say just as a another uh, side note is uh listeners if you feel that return of the jedi is a candidate for sequelizing no. we've already some people have already suggested yeah. it then yeah. let us know let us know why in the comments and let us know what you do with it or if you like it or whatever I tell us you, your thoughts on jedi i bet you the sequel trilogy is going to be the best fucking trilogy of star wars fucking come at me <laughs> carry on wow i think so okay interesting the word trilogy is key but yeah. yeah should we talk about some trilogies we actually enjoy gentlemen yeah have some positive movie discussion on this hate-filled podcast no i'm joking bill and ted <laughs> yep let's do it um, oh my god you're gonna get a bill and ted trilogy yeah it's, it's, it's happening yeah it's the thing that's happening good lord so we've each picked a particular trilogy we particularly enjoy and mr plowman why don't you pick the particular trilogy you particularly like sure i'll jump in with mine uh my slightly gruffly voiced introduction oh yeah the mule trilogy that's might have been a clue yeah. for some of you batman eagle-eared listeners uh, I'm going to be talking about whether you want to call it the Dollars Trilogy, the Man With No Name Trilogy, the Spaghetti Western Trilogy, but that there trilogy of Western films starring Clint Eastwood, directed by Sergio Leone, that came out in the mid to late 1960s. I'm going to do so with a caveat. I'm going to let my good friend Matthew Stogden jump in at this juncture because, of course, whether or not this is actually a trilogy based on your definition, is sometimes contested. Yeah, online there's a huge... On, and this is the debate that's been going on since, I mean, to be fair, decades, um, whereby Clint Eastwood himself said United Artists pushed this as a trilogy when it wasn't considered stuff. Leone didn't make it a trilogy in the first place. But, and also for the fact that um, Valente returns twice as different characters, so is Lee Van Cleef. But again, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly specifically, as, as um, Alec was saying when we were initially talking about what film we're going to go for, it's almost, it, well, it is a prequel to the uh, to um, uh, Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more, because he essentially does kind of what Solo, a Star Wars story <laughs> does, but good. He assembles <laughs> all the pieces of his character yeah. in this amazing epic movie. 
And it's like, well, that's, I mean, yes, okay, other characters name him things like Joe, Manko, and, and Blondie, Blondie and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it is very likely the same character, but it's left very ambiguous. There's, and I like, think that's why it there's personally works. There's a reason why he's referred to as the man with no name. Is mm. that these three names that he's given are nicknames that are given to him by the character Entirely. that he comes across. Just like Han Solo in Solo, right, guys? <laughs> like that really Solo. subtle piece of t- storytelling. Han, all by himself, that'll do. <laughs> Who are your people, Han? What? Just ask him what his Corellians, surname is. Corellians, motherfucker. Han Caucasian, that'll do. <laughs> ask, him, ask him what his surname is, you weirdo. Yeah. Han <laughs> White. What a strange way to phrase that question. It is. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I, re- I have loved these films for the longest time, and I think that as part of my journey into cinema, I think this was really my first foray into cinema that went beyond a love of 80s the stuff we were talking about in the last episode, 80s yeah. and 90s blockbuster action and horror movie videotapes. This was my first foray into, oh, there's something else out there. <laughs> um, something with depth and cinematography. <laughs> so it's it's interesting. I think that you've got three films here that, and the, the great thing about these movies is that I think, I think each is as good as each other. I would say they are each mm. a five-star film. I would argue, as Matt said, that the good, the bad, and the ugly... Uh, which is more epic in scope and in runtime is the crowning jewel in mm. uh, in this series. Um, and what I think is interesting about these movies and part of the reason why I think they work as a trilogy, and I think this is something that we might come on to in discussions of other films that do things differently, but I think there are two ways to create a really good trilogy. Hit it. And the first one is to have films that are standalone stories but linked by broader thematics uh which is what uh the dollars trilogy is Mm. because they are three standalone films that deal with the same kinds of morality and are shot in the same way and raise many of the same questions with the same protagonist um all of which are revisions on the western as it was established in the in the 30s and 50s there are a bloodier, more morally ambiguous vision of the American West and a commentary on that. So I think that's way number one to do it. And I think way number two to do it is to set out to make a trilogy of films so that you always consider what is coming in the next installment. One of the problems, I think, as far as um a lot of trilogies that don't make the cut go is that the first film is a standalone film and then films two and three try and create an over overarching narrative that's meant to sort of link back into i try to retroactively realize it's a trilogy oh shit we can make money out of this something one might call something one might call the pirates of the caribbean problem (laughs) yeah but (laughs) but like literally anything you look at the dark knight trilogy you've got that Mm, there you look at fucking star um, wars star wars a great example (laughs) uh the matrix and what you often find is that you end up with a great self-contained first film Mm. a really interesting second film that feels like it's setting up something great though not in the case of the matrix Hmm. um and then and then a third film that can't deliver on the promise of the second film and i think that the great thing about the dollars trilogy is you really feel like you are watching a film series but because of that self-contained story you get you know it's it's satisfying from a narrative perspective in a way that i think other trilogies aren't plus i just really like 
you know, in his prime, Clint Eastwood was just one of the great kind of leading men of his day. And I think that Eastwood is just on point throughout all of these, all of these three. Yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, I, I, I equally love the shit out of these films. Uh, I've adored them since I was uh, a teenager before. Yeah, about teenagers. Um, and it's interesting because, as you say, it's they were not necessarily reviled in America, but they weren't classic Westerns. Spaghetti Westerns were mm. seen as the, the European equivalent of what they think of. Well, we should, and we should, for a bit of context for listeners who perhaps haven't seen these films, mm. this is a series of films that was made in Italy, mm-hmm. made by Italians. So they, were they made filmed in Spain. In Italy? They're made in Spain, filmed in Italy by Sergio Leone. And I think that the uh, among the American film aficionados of the era mm. the opinion was very much that this is a, a hyper-violent knockoff of yes. the real thing a hyper-violent knockoff of john ford yeah the, yeah the it's, it's so interesting because there's a, there's a a, a a sort of pinball machine style uh development in the history of it which i'll go through very 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 briefly um the idea is john ford influences so many people throughout time and how to direct a film um if we're backwards for a second sergio Lena comes out and Fistful of Dollars is a really graphic, amazing, awesome film, and it's really well received. And, and this is how I remember I experienced it myself. I thought, this is fuck. Sergio Leone is my favorite director. And then it was revealed to me that, oh, did you know it's a remake of Yojimbo? Mm. I'm like, what? Mm. And it's like, oh, there's a Japanese director. I'm like, who's this guy? Kurosawa. I'm like, <laughs> all right, I'll check out his work. And then obviously I had an erection. And from you've ever hated since. him ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's like, oh, wow. Kurosawa is like an amazing director. What about him? I was really inspired by John Ford and Weston's like, oh. So yeah. it comes back to Western again. So, yeah, that. it just bounces back from yeah. one culture, but it's so relatable because it's frontier life. But then it, it's interesting because it defines what Westerns are for our generation and Absolutely, others yeah. more than like John Wayne films. And these, these films are, are defining. And I mean, of course, and I think in, as far as the argument goes that this isn't a trilogy, I think that you have to only look at the other Western films that Sergio Leone directed. Mm. So um, Fistful of Dynamite, or to go by its original title, <laughs> Duck, Duck, You Sucker. sucker. Yeah. Because, um, he was convinced. And the fun, the, fun story, the fun story behind this is that, yes, indeed, Sergio Leone was convinced, mm. mistakenly, that this was a popular American phrase. Yeah. So it was like, everybody runs around saying, Duck, You Sucker, right? And people so were like, weird. no, yeah, not totally. really. <laughs> so that's what they named the film, and nobody went to see it. Because nope. people were like, what was And it's this? spectacular. Yeah, so, it's a good film. Yeah, yeah good movie. Sucker. And then, of course, once upon a time in the west which is another mm-hmm. masterpiece of western cinema but these films are very distinct from the dollars trilogy True. in spite of still being sergio leone westerns so i think that to say that these three clint eastwood films he made back to back were not a trilogy is oh, a I strange know, yeah. a strange sort of argument but there we go that's my pick anyway i think they're great films if you've not seen them definitely go watch them guys because they're phenomenal I agree. I concur entirely. I'll jump in with mine next. A little bit more modern than yours, Alec, but certainly a trilogy. Unquestionably a trilogy. I think. <laughs> <laughs> They're all filmed at the same bloody time. I'm talking about Lord of the Rings. I mean, you say more recent. It was like nearly two decades ago. <laughs> yeah, more recent than the 60s, Matthew. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. I retract my statement. My statement. Stands. <laughs> so well, we're, we're assuming time is linear. <laughs> yes. Like these trilogies. So here's the interesting thing is that in terms of my two trilogy like rules for making a good trilogy, this definitely fits into rule number two. Yes. <laughs> as the, as the... Yeah, definitely. So obviously Peter Jackson directed all three of these 
monstrous. I mean, you talked about the, the, the runtime of the Dollars trilogy is pretty impressive, but Lord of the Rings is kind of legendary, especially if you're going for like extended editions and all that kind of yeah. stuff for being this truly epic tale that spans across the three films. And you know, with extended editions, you're talking like 14 hours of cinema or something like that. It's absolutely insane. And the way they're able to weave so many different characters, the main kind of nine in the Fellowship and have kind of Frodo Baggins story going through and the things that really stand out for me going back and re-watching them and I won't touch on it too much but comparing it to the more modern Hobbit trilogy is that they just look so timelessly good the makeup is amazing the costumes are amazing even some of the CGI sure it's wobbly it's early 2000 CGI it holds up way more than some of the fucking Hobbit stuff because mm. the Hobbit stuff tries a bit too hard whereas I think Lord of the Rings struck that perfect combination between a lot really nice practical stuff amazing casting the whole cast really kind of knocks it out of the park in in ways I wasn't expecting. Being, I, I grew up on The Hobbit. The Hobbit was like my favourite book as a kid. And then I later discovered all the weird like Silmarillion shit from my dad. And he was like, there's another one. There's a whole like trilogy of them called Lord <laughs> of the Rings. I was like, oh my God, there's Hobbits again. Yay. And yeah, the, I remember how much those films. I was, what, 11, 12 and 13 when these films came out. So they were Good like age. perfect fucking age for these movies. Yeah, I think I'm. I mean, I think a year or two older. Than yeah, you. you're I don't remember. Yeah, 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 but I can remember being yeah similarly at at a right age when these films came out. Interesting thing, I can remember going to see the Two Towers and Attack of the Clones in the same year, <laughs> and I can remember my divergent reactions Good in Lord. the cinema, just how fidgety I got during Attack of the Clones versus <laughs> the Two Towers, and the Two Towers is like an hour longer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. think that says a lot about. It I really think Lord of the Rings has had such a an impressive influence on particularly like fantasy films and the way fantasy has been shot since then. Like Game of Thrones has taken so many cues and the way they kind of shot that in so many ways. The, the obvious comparison is one of the big final battles without spoiling Game of Thrones. Um, they literally said like, oh yeah, we're totally influenced by the Helm's Deep Battle because mm -hmm. the Helm's Deep Battle is like 42 minutes long or something with cutaways and stuff granted but like from start to finish it's a good 40 minutes of that film just one big battle loads of orcs loads of elves one location and just a fucking amazing soundtrack as well uh, speaking of the dollars we barely touched on any of Morikami oh my there. god like, yeah of course like the weirdly kind of similarities between Lord of the Rings and the dollars trilogy True. like I feel like the soundtrack of Lord of the Rings really just drives the really epic moments and then gets really quiet and somber when it needs to and perfectly captures all the emotional moments and the the journeys of those characters for the, the better and the worse as they go through yeah those those epic epic journeys i think there's a really interesting contrast with um rings and hobbit uh in that of course with lord of the rings there was a lot of pressure correct me if i'm wrong here but there was a lot of pressure on jackson not to make it a trilogy yeah new line wanted it to be one or two yes, films they did. And yeah. he yep, definitely really fought for the idea that you needed three films to do this justice and if i'm not wrong he shot them all and they were like you need to make that too and he was like oh fuck really i've got <laughs> a, i've got a lot of film here i need to cut down <laughs> i need to cut down hundreds and hundreds of hours of this though i don't know how i'm gonna edit this down and like you said yeah mm. and whereas with the hobbit you have the absolute opposite which is you've got one film's worth of story yeah stretch it into two and then three yeah. films which is yeah. 
Um, and unfortunately, that it's a strange thing where the industry used to be reticent to take something that, that they were going to have to commit to being a multiple movie thing. These days, the industry is very keen to turn around and yes. go, let's launch a franchise. Mm. It's like, if you're not a trilogy, get the yeah, fuck out. That's mm-hmm. one yeah. film. That's one. Let's launch an expanded universe. And it's like, well, you don't launch them. They just sort of happen. And um, Lord of the Rings, yeah, it's a good thing that in that moment that Peter Jackson fought for that because I think he yes it does it justice but I think that having that a having a very strong series of books to base it on that was already a trilogy was helpful and b having that continuity of vision across the entire filmmaking process and he does some very savvy things for example he shifts the appearance of Shelob the spider from the end yes. of Two Towers to the beginning of Return of the King. And same with Boromir's funeral that shifted from the yeah. end of book mm. one. Yeah, yeah so he moves things around in terms of um, dramatic impact. He's thinking about it very filmically. Yeah. But just being able to have that kind of foresight while making three movies to go I'm going to be able to make these decisions because I know how the land is going to lie across these nine hours 14 hours of footage depending on what version you're <laughs> yeah. watching um, I, I think really help those movies because they feel so coherent even though I mean I feel this less with the extended cuts which I'm not such a fan of but I feel like one of the great things about the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that there's not a lot, in spite of them being massive, there's no bloat in it or anything. It's yeah. just, it's streamlined. Things happen at the right you moment. You cut and, a lot of stuff out of the books to make it hmm. fit into a cinematic viewpoint a lot easier. And as you rightly said, Alec, The Hobbit does the exact opposite. And I think you even understated it a little bit because The Hobbit is 115 pages, yeah, that book. How the fuck you make 10 hours of footage from 115 pages and then each of the lord of the rings is like eight or nine hundred so you're working with you know what 15 times the content or whatever it is is the whole about 400 is it 400 yeah it's much longer than 115 it's still still a weighty book but yeah it's it's like half a lord of the rings yeah yeah Yeah. i think there's a real comparison that can be made between um star wars and lord of the rings in terms of you have the original trilogy where it was a huge success. It was a, a, technically a huge undertaking. And not only did they do an extremely good job on it, they also basically invented a lot of the technology yeah. that they what, needed. What Weta did for those films is absolutely insane. Exactly. And, then, and it's so strange that it took 25 years for um, George Lucas to come back with a prequel trilogy that contained far too much CGI mm. and was bloated and directionless compared to the first one. And, you know, much more efficient <laughs> Peter Jackson comes along and only 10 years later comes back <laughs> with a trilogy that involves far too much, much CGI, CGI and is bloated, bloated. <laughs> and directionless compared to the original. And, and it's such a shame because I think that it, the Lord of the Rings came at that kind of... They, they inhabit that same kind of spirit as as Jurassic Park, where there is a lot of obviously a lot of CGI involved, but they also have that great physical yeah. makeup, and it cre- it it creates a world with so much weight to it. And then you compare that to the Hobbit trilogy, where like there's not a single real orc in it basically, and it just feels so 
it's already aged. There's random like video game level moments. Yeah. The fucking barrels are the perfect example. I of mean, that. Just to like... be fair, there is one moment that stands out like that in the Lord of the Rings films. Legolas on the Olyphant. He's sliding yeah. down the thing and he looks that's, all weightless and weird. That's yeah. a bit ridiculous. But yeah, they're not as... But that, that That's two sti- minutes compared to yeah. nine hours. And that one <laughs> sticks out so much because everything else in the film looks yeah, so exactly, good. Yes. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, the, the Hobbit movie is an entire three films of that especially in every scene with Legolas mm. we also forget that the Lord of the Rings technically changed how uh, well not changed maybe this is a bit exa- uh, hyperbole but it altered how home media kind of went in terms of what people were promoting so for example when the extended edition of the Lord of the Rings the Fellowship of the Ring came out it was just this huge expensive big green book of a thing and then we're like what's this it's like oh it's more film and there's a huge two disc documentary and it's like Who's going to buy this? And then it sold really well. Turned out everyone. (laughs) And then suddenly someone said, get everything on these discs. I mean, there's always like special edition things and like double disc things, but this was the first... Three disc special feature, extra double documentary bullshit. Because in the same year, Pearl Harbor did the same thing and brought a three disc edition. It's like, you made a mistake, nobody cares. (laughs) Do you know Um, know what I remembered the other day? The fact that there was an X-Men 1.5 DVD. I still have X-Men 1.5. As do I. (laughs) Sat on my shelf at home. So that's why I love... Lord of the Rings, so very, very much. I think we all do, to be honest. It, yeah. is, it, is, oh, an all, yeah. it is an all-time great. For yeah, a reason. and I, I think especially, um, yeah, being of you and I being of a particular age yes. when watching those films, not like the focus in the other, yeah. on the other side. I was like sixteen. Fuck you. Formative experience. Yeah, I, I was eleven. Matthew, you were you were a creepy old man to me back then. You still are now. Hey, you <laughs> dick. Speaking of creepy old men, Matthew's love of the past and. <laughs> Matt's Matt's picked a film your favourite and Matt Stogden's. <laughs> here is here is Matt Stogden's film series choice, which is literally three years older than yours. So I'm going with uh, the Human Condition trilogy. What's that? Everybody's favourite. What's that? <laughs> yeah. So we like to think here about how we can obviously talk to you about things you're already familiar with, like a Buzzfeed list. Like you know all these the things. But we also go with things like you've never heard of this. Maybe you'll like it. I just just to say to you now, dear listeners, Matt Stogden. He he here to culture you right now. So <laughs> you prepared to get cultured? Yeah. So either be prepared to get cultured or just go put the kettle on. So. Yeah. It's yogurt time. I love the way you used we as like a collective of like, oh yeah, we, we like to educate you on shit you don't know about and weird obscure Japanese films. We being solely Matt's dog. <laughs> we we did like fucking creature from that lagoon too. That's no one's yeah. The, yeah, yeah. People have, people anyway, have, like Joe Public has heard. I've of heard the of Creature of the Black Lagoon. No, no, no. I'd heard of Poseidon well, Adventure. Anyway, Sit your asses down. Anyway, get get, get to learning. Get educating, Grandpa. Right. So basically, the Human Condition trilogy is made up of three parts called No Greater Love, Road to Eternity, and A Soldier's Prayer. It is directed by Masaki Kobayashi, and it's based on a book by Junpei Gomakawa. And it is very much similar to the whole Lord of the Rings thing of it was so lovingly and faithfully adapted because the director said, okay, we'll go on with the script. And suddenly if they were, even if they were filming and thought, hang on, this is, there's a scene missing from the book here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we, we glitzed over it. We'll put it in. It's literally almost wow. like beat for beat the book, um, which is why. Is the, is the book epic as well? The book is huge. Right, okay. Uh, the book is also a trilogy of books. Oh, okay. Right, that makes sense. But basically, it's all the rings. Literally. Actually, no, it's, it's six books if I remember correctly. Fucking hell. Okay. But this is the thing. The, much like Lord of the Rings, the Human Condition is three three-hour movies. It's like a nine-hour epic, which can, in theory, and has been on some screens, watched as one film sometimes. Um, so the story is effectively very, very, very simple. It is set in Manchuria, in northern China, and it's about when Japan was uh, in charge of it. At the, so just a pre-war period. And this guy is 
in the opening scene that's like um, trying to get, think about getting married and doesn't know if he's should or not because everyone's getting signed up for the military action and stuff like that and he ends up getting married and it's like, oh, this is great. I've got my wife. Everything's wonderful. And they go to a uh, a mining colony sort of area and then he's put in charge of the Chinese laborers there. And he, immediately all the politics of this comes out about how he's a socialist and he's not really okay with the Japanese idea of um, inclusion and everything is teamwork and the sort of fascist things at the time. And he tries to speak up for the rights of the of the workers. And as such, he gets in a lot of trouble. And by the end of the first film, he's like, you're a troublemaker. We're going to fucking enlist you into the army. Second film, he gets enlisted into the army and he gets trained. And again, he's this whole conflict of his pacifism and he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't believe it's right to be cruel people. He's got dickhead superiors, dickhead fellow operatives and trainees and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, at one point, a soldier commits suicide because he's been bullied so much by the whole situation. And he is, you know, trying to stand up for the people. He takes a beating for the whole thing. He keeps trying to keep his mindset of, no, 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 no. I'm a pacifist. I'm a socialist. I don't believe in these things. Treat people properly. And then by the end of the film, they're all put on the front line. And he's, you know, a load of Russian tanks just come over the, uh, over the, over the ridge and just blow the crap out. And they're on it like rifles. They're like, you defend this land. You're Japanese. If you have, uh, your, if your commander dies, you kill yourself. And it's like, mm, I'm not comfortable with this. Anyway, so at one point, these Russians come over and start executing all these people they can find. And um, he effectively just strangles someone with his bare hands to keep him quiet, his own, his own, you know, colleague. And then by the end of that film, he just wanders off. And then in the third film, He's just wandering around Manchuria, bumps into a load of people who he tries to take through the woods to say, oh, don't worry, I'll help you. We'll be, we'll be fine. We'll just meet up with more Japanese people. They go mad in the woods, eat a load of berries, a baby dies. It all gets really horrific. And because oh, there's been a barrel of laughs up until then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and then he comes across a load of Japanese people and they're like, um, uh, you know, you're a deserter, basically. And effectively, then he goes to work with the Chinese people, who he's then like, "Oh, well, don't worry, because I helped you people when I was working in the, in the, um, in the mine things." Like, no, we hate you, you Japanese piece of shit. And it's like, okay. And then finally, um, he can't. They all, Japan basically gets trounced over by the Soviets, and then is put in a Soviet POW camp. He then has a sort of circle of being a prisoner and treating like shit. And then he wanders, eventually he escapes after all this stuff happens, wanders off into a field and fucking dies. And it's... Just dies in a field. Miserable <laughs> wow. as shit. It sounds it. And the whole thing is traumatizing. It's long and painful. It's got some... And not just like, like Ducky Sucker, it's got some really beautiful David Lean-style epic I visuals. I Ducky Sucker. <laughs> Ducky Sucker. That's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. Fistful of Dynamite is much better as a title. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is It is one of the best pieces of cinema ever made. And, one of, and if you like, look at like a best trilogies list, this is always up there in the top five sort of thing. This is a quote from Philip Kemp, who's a, a critic. The human condition stands as an achievement of extraordinary power and emotional resonance. At once, a celebration of the resilience of the individual conscious and a purging of forced complicity in guilt of a nation and as the title implies of the whole human race which Kaji the main character attains through his death and Kobayashi through his making of this film and controversially at the time it was 15 years after the war Japan didn't want to hear about how they lost and were assholes the whole time to the Chinese but this film is like revolutionary amazing and it's only just been available over here in the last uh, over here being Britain in the last three or four years basically so it's wow, been a, really yeah it's been like youtube and so like so I've, I've seen it long before and obviously through other means and screenings but to buy um but it's beautiful cinema and again it's one of those things that it, if you look at it it's, it's a really grisly nasty war film that covers everything every other war film was ever covered 
And the best thing about it, and as weird as it sounds, is that it's from the losing side. So it literally has such a self-deprecation and such a shame and a guilt, as well as I'm trying to be a good person, but you can't in this situation. So my question for you, Matthew Stockton, is Go for it. why does it work as a trilogy? As a trilogy, it works because the as silly as it sounds, those pieces where they are um, stopped off have a point where you can jump in. You don't have to know about the previous thing. So the really? First, yes, as wow. silly as it sounds, because it's so epic and broad and sprawling. It's like where you watch, like, um, I can't think of an example, so I it sounds. but if you watch, like, uh, say, the Hacksaw Ridge, it's a snapshot of someone's life at a point. Yes, it's got a lot right. of flashbacks, yeah, things, sure, sure. but it's those bits. Whereas if you show all of it drawn out, you can make them more contained. So the first film, he's with his um, partner, and he wants to get married, and he goes off to this mining colony, and he doesn't want to get signed up, and he gets signed up to the war. That's it. It's a bad ending. Second film, there's a guy who's just been enlisted in the army. And by the end of the film, he's in the front and he's like, oh my God, a, a terrible thing. And it has a nice arc. Each film stops and opens perfectly because much like a book. Again, this is probably why, much like Lord of the Rings, because it feels like although it's a continuing arc of somebody's life. Were they all shot at the same time? Yes. Right. They were all shot yeah. back to back. Released right. in... Uh, ooh. 57, 59, 61, I think it is. But right, basically, right. yeah, they were, they were pretty much like back-to-back -back and shown and released almost back-to-back. -back. Um, but yeah, quite quite the undertaking full stop. And it, mostly because of the central performance, which is astounding, basically. There's one, the final shot I mentioned about him dying in the field. He had to lie down in um, somewhere in Hokkaido and he's got uh, face down in the snow. He's been wandering and everything's he's like a beggar and he's got this cloth sack all over him and he's awful. Big fat beard and he's like, you know, wide-eyed stare of a man who's gone basically crazy and convinced he's like, I'm just going to have five minutes. I'm just going to stop for like, maybe just maybe just five minutes. And then I'm like, I'm come home to you. Don't worry. It's fine. Like every sort of war film kind of does. And he said, I'm just going to lie down here. And then the director made him lie down in the field for half an hour until the snow covered him. Wow. And it's like, yeah, just, just stay wow. there. It's one of those sort of manic things you can get away with in the 50s and 60s where you literally <laughs> can't now at all. Um, but again, the film shows that and there's so many broad, sprawling visuals that, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a masterpiece of cinema, and I think again one of those critically acclaimed things that nobody really talks about or has heard of, but is one of the greatest war films and trilogies certainly because you don't get war trilogies ever made. Having never fucking heard of this before, yeah, I really want to see it now. Th that's, I'm very intrigued. It's so good, and the politics, the emotions, the character development—they're so fucking good, and it's so painful because you know how it's going to end. I kind of need more pain in my life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's so sad because it literally is—it takes that realistic thing. Do you know how the, when you're a kid or you're like doing painful thing? Oh, wonder how I do in the war or Call of Duty style. I wonder if I do all right in battle. <laughs> You'd be shit, mate. Mm -hmm. Have Call of Duty in your day, old man? Yeah, they did. Call of Duty is like old, and I'm pretty spry for my <laughs> age, young man. Yeah. And if you don't keep it up, yeah. I think I think the game that you're uh, thinking of here, Matthew, is Risk. Uh, <laughs> I think it's called Hoop and Stick. Um, yeah, no, it's it's spectacular and it is very painful because it is the idea of can you be a good person and fight in a war? And the answer, and it's even like he's protecting his own life or even trying to be a good person to 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 prisoners. And he tries to talk to the, at this perspective. Well, he talks to the Russians or he's trying to, but the 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 translator is Japanese and hates him. So he keeps saying, oh, he said you're stupid. And the Russians get furious. And he's like, no, no, I'm a socialist. And I, I agree with the ideals. Problem is when he's been in a socialist POW camp, he's like, I fucking hate the communists. <laughs> he's like, oh no, you've, you're all your thing, things you thought were your core ideals. In the last 50, it's why he's like, I'm escaping tonight. I'm sorry, I need to get out. It's like, oh, but you thought this is what you, no, no, no. I'm, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, bye. And uh, it's crazy. It's really good. But it, also a big commitment to watch. <laughs> is, there, is there much of a, like a supporting cast? Because it sounds like it's basically this one guy's 
journey. It is. There is in 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 answer to is there a supporting cast? It's fucking enormous in terms of extras. But I'd say it's a bit like Gone with the Wind in that there are some really key supports. But much like the whole thing that Alec brings up about the trilogy aspect, those supports leave each film. So every t- he's got a really uh, core group of people in the uh, the mining camp. He's got a core group of people when he's in the training area. And then when he's actually, you know, on the front line and, and walking through, there are different types of people. So it is literally if you... Okay, put it this way. If you took all the fun out of Mad Max <laughs> and just showed him walking from one place to another rather than the cool things he did when he gets there, that's this movie. And it's just batshit insane and fucked up. My and life sad. is blood and dirt. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Fire and blood. Fire and blood, thank you. So I think the best way to segue from this is going from some really big, epic, you know, American Civil War stuff to some really epic fantasy war stuff to some really epic World War II war stuff to Tim with our closing trilogy of badasses. The most epic, and sorrowful e- trilogy of them all. An equally epic story. Of epic epic of, of epic proportions. I will be talking about the Kung Fu Panda trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie, listeners. Before Tim says anything, when he suggested this, I thought he was joking. Because I have not seen any of these films. I think I've maybe seen the first one a while ago, but I I don't know if I was watching it that intently because I don't really remember it. So I might, it might have been seen some of the first on at well, Christmas yeah. or something like that. As someone who's seen all three, I actually totally fucking get it. Wow. Yeah, okay. I think I think that the thing to key into, um, I, I I genuinely think they're great films. Um, I think there is a consistency to them that is extremely impressive especially given the fact that unlike the rest of the trilogies that we've discussed the team the the team behind the scenes the directing team and and, and stuff is not consistent oh the really films. okay yeah so yeah. the um the first one is directed by john stevenson and mark osborne and then the second one is uh directed by uh jennifer u nelson and then she co-directs on the third one with alessandro carloni um and equally the uh the screenwriting is more consistent. It's uh, Jonathan Abel and Glenn Berger, but the original story was by Ethan Reif and Cyrus Voris, who just has the most... Uh, sounds Cyrus like Cyrus Voris. Yeah, he sounds Fucking like he should be being man. shot by like Peter Weller in 1993. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's not it's not a consistent team, although there are consistent kind of presences in it. Like Je- Jennifer U. Nelson obviously directed the, the second two Um but not necessarily by herself. Um, it's it's an incredibly consistent trilogy, and the the other thing to remember is that this the, certainly the first one came out at the kind of peak CGI cartoon. I mean, we're still in peak CGI cartoon, hmm. but but in that real glut of shoddy DreamWorks uh, time, where you had stuff like um, B movie and uh, Fly me to the moon, and stuff. I know they're not DreamWorks productions, but Fucking those fly me to the moon, fly yeah. me to the moon, um, terrible film. You you had a huge glut of these. It was post Pixar becoming successful, and then DreamWorks had you know had their initial successes, and there were a lot of terrible cartoons out for kids at that time. And I think that Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon, which is the other one, which I haven't seen the third one of, so I, I couldn't hold that up as a another. 
Um, I have seen all three and love all three. Yeah, I can vouch for those for sure. Yeah, I think. I literally named my cat Toothless. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think those are the two kind of shining lights. And I think it's not a coincidence that they both had trilogies. Um, They, uh, and and I think they they kind of work, (laughs) it's a weird comparison to make. They work a lot like the Dollars trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) The panda with no name. Yeah, there's there's obviously a more consistent cast of characters throughout all three but each one works very much as a story by itself like it works perfectly fine as an isolated thing it obviously wasn't intended to be a trilogy from the word go because all of these films were kind of made with that like well if we can churn them out then we will do Mm. and if we can't then it's just a one-off kind of thing um but the the first story take takes us through Poe, the Kung Fu Panda, as ably played by Jack Black, Mm. takes us through his initial almost kind of accidental being drafted into this position of the dragon warrior, this great foretold foretold, um, warrior who's going to come. And it's a really clever subversion of the whole like chosen one kind of stories that you get. Um, That takes us through his initial kind of training and becoming this dragon warrior and realizing the potential that he actually has. And then the second film is a lot of him coming to terms with that and the uh, realizing what his position is meant to be in his kind of community and toward China. And then the third film is him becoming a teacher in his own right um, and becoming a sort of an instructor and a leader. Um, And it is a really nice kind of watching the character grow, you know, for for what are, of course, kids' films, you know, films aimed at children. There is a really nice consistency to his character growth and it takes on quite a mature journey for what is a film where, like, you know, he quite consistently hits people with his belly, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> ah, the height of maturity. Exactly. You know, uh, it's there's so many kids films out there where it's just this very simplistic message of like you just gotta be yourself and even the the original kung fu panda kind of it kind of works on that message but Mm. it also it does something more interesting with it it kind of basically says that um you have to kind of believe in in you have to work towards your own strengths you know and seeking something outside yourself to validate yourself isn't really ideal there are some really this is the thing that surprised me about these films first of all they're really pretty mm. insanely pretty but the themes at work tim's mentioning like themes of identity themes of belonging themes of acceptance themes of maturity and evolution of maturity and it's it's i mean yes okay it's jack black saying skidoosh and yeah. stuff like that it's got all the things and the fact that his personality is so strong mm. i literally what, winced then <laughs> yeah but God damn, they are really, A, very fun, mm. but they're also done in a really loving homage way of martial arts films and principles. So it does have an actual understanding of the core principles mm. and playing on those at the same time. Yeah, yeah it's uh, there's a lot of understanding of that kind of uh, relationship that you have with a, with a, with a sensei, with an instructor. Um, it deals, d- deals a lot in his position he's adopted, mm. um, which kind of isn't, is winked towards in the first film Uh, and then the second film really dives into it and the second and third films are both about him kind of coming to terms with his position as as someone who's adopted and what that means to his identity and to his his relationships 
and also the fighting in it is great like it is genuinely exciting action scenes and and for uh, you know obviously you have that it's animated so you can heighten things in Mm -hmm. in ways and like i wish that the iron fist series had had (laughs) like a fifth of the imagination that goes into the like choreography in kung fu panda because they do they do like genuinely interesting things the action scenes are genuinely uh, kinetic and impressive uh and yeah it's 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 a great and there's there's great beauty in them that kineticness in animated films is particularly difficult like alec kind of touched upon with that scene with legolas where everybody looks really floaty and there's no real kind Mm. of like the objects don't look like they're interacting with each other having that kind of animated things hitting animated things and Mm. have it having your weight is a really difficult thing to do and another really difficult thing to do i think is animated movie sequels we've talked about this so many times how much disney have just churned them out and fucked them up over and over again and we talked about two trilogies just then how to train your dragon and kung fu panda Mm. they fucking nailed it perfectly yeah it's bizarre. No, it's, a, it's an interesting choice that kind of counterbalances how many bad animated <laughs> yeah. sequels we've had to talk about of these series so far. I think it's very much a victim of that whole thing where we said earlier there's a really strong first film that says good standalone and then all of a sudden you don't know what to do with it next. Milk it, churn them out. Mm-hmm. Entirely. For as little budget as possible. It sounds inter- like they actually kind of love these films and kind of actually put some effort in yeah. and stuff. And yeah. Funnily enough, that goes a long way in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Passion is literally, as silly as it sounds sometimes outweighs any sort of fiscal support. Interestingly, while we have things like the three that we've mentioned ourselves, Jack, Alec and myself, have launched huge careers for the makers of the films and the actors inside, Kung Fu Panda, strangely, is the only example that draws huge names into it. Mm-hmm. Established names. So you've obviously got like Jack Black and Dustin Hoffman and all the key, you know, uh, Furious Five sort of, um, you know, core group mm. and they're quite huge names in this themselves yeah the the cost on this the, in in all the films yeah. is ridiculous you bring in like well, I mean, obviously uh, ian mcshane in the first film as the main bad mm. guy you ian, up that ian to, mcshane is in the yeah hell. you up that to I gary don't even oldman know the cast. gary oldman and then jk simmons and it's like there's the three core Fuck bad me, guys they're ama- that's a great yeah. set imagine, of villains that's imagine amazing like a batman film with those three bad guys like, that's amazing <laughs> i guess this is a thing that um animation can do as well because True. getting people in for voice for voice roles is always um in terms of assembling a massive cast mm-hmm. i mean the you know the first like real example of the assembled animation mega cast is prince of egypt which yeah just nuts but i love that film. but yeah no i i uh, it's it's pretty cool that you can bring all those people together for that yeah kind of and i think it's it's telling that in a lot of you know you go back to things like shark tale oh, that was by up. dreamworks and when they had famous people they leaned into it so hard that the the animations were modeled on them yeah you, and they're literally playing themselves and they're like pl- they're a fish or yeah, they're a shark or whatever the fuck yeah. they're playing themselves and then in this you have character you have people like angelina jolie but she's actually doing a performance and like yes. the, the, the film never leans acting. into <laughs> act, acting. Uh, the film never leans into the fact that, you know, Oh, we've got a bunch of famous people in it. It's just, Oh, these people can give great performances. Mm. And I think finally we, we talked about how the animation has some weight to it as a bigger guy. I think it's great that we have a film where the protagonist yeah. is fat and he's never like particularly shamed for it. And like, he is 
like active and doesn't ever have to like slim down to be a badass it's it's the sumo mindset of like this is your greatest strength you will be literally <laughs> unstoppable kind of yeah. thing yeah it's it's pretty good. and again we get to have john claude van damme as a crocodile Yes. <laughs> fucking soul done yeah. all, all that yeah. other stuff like that's really deep themes and interesting amazing beautiful jcvd crocodile yeah. <laughs> that's all you need no that, that, and I, th- I can't stress enough because i mean again it's because of the, as you said there's a plethora of these kind of films so you do end up backgrounding them but um how to train your dragon as an example mm-hmm. but also this one are and i said it before genuinely pretty movies they are mm. shot really beautiful the color and the depth of field and things and the fact that it looks like it's actually had some proper cinematography to it mm. is astounding and they they do some creative things with the animation as well it's not yeah. there are there are segments where it's more kind of like done like 2d animation yeah um to for stylistic purposes and um yeah it's just gorgeous mm-hmm. all the way through I'm surprisingly sold. Mm. And it, it, it tells a lot that listeners in our little, you've seen the recording studio font of a phrase that is Matt's living room. <laughs> I can look to my right and see all three Kung Fu Panda movies on Blu-ray over there. Yeah. That says a lot. I, I know Matt basically owns every Blu-ray that's ever been published <laughs> in the UK. But yeah, I'm, I'm instantly intrigued by genuine, I, I mean, I joked about Jean-Claude Van Damme as a <laughs> crocodile, but like, yeah, they seem genuinely interesting and... I'm intrigued to try them out. And now I want to watch both of... I've, I've seen our two trilogies, mine and Alex, and then <laughs> I need to see your two trilogies. Maybe I could alternate and do like Ooh, the first that, human condition, God, Kung that, Fu Panda one. That's such a weird palette cleanser. <laughs> that, that is some tonal whiplash. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing I love about this show and the mid-season stuff as we get to obviously talk about, you know, bad sequels and things. But the fact that we obviously get to open the door and say, well, these are some good sequels. And also, these are some good films you need to watch. Mm. And yeah. it's like, and again, this day and age, all of those films, if you've uh, have heard of them, seen them or otherwise, they're easy to find. And it's like, oh, I can get that on streaming. I can get that on DVD. Again, my one, the human condition, you can watch that on YouTube for free now. <laughs> so, but I'm watching it right now. I'm watching it right now. <laughs> so it, yeah, but then in like Lord of the Rings, I mean, if you want to get like a DVD copy, it costs nothing. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, so yeah, I think it's, it's nice that people have the opportunity to, to do that. Um, <laughs> whereas there's a lot of gatekeeping with certain films. You like, Good luck finding it. It's only on VHS in like one translation. So, yeah. so there are some trilogies we rather enjoy. If you want to tell us about trilogies you enjoy, perhaps things we... I want to hear stuff for kind of like Matt's, where you wouldn't, we wouldn't have necessarily... Heard, I'm sure Matt's heard of it, but maybe I wouldn't have heard of it as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a plebe to these cinematography kind of epic early kind of 50s, 60s films that I'm mm. not particularly queued up on. And obviously Matt, laid out his five types of trilogies at the mm. uh, at the start of the episode we will be coming back uh, for future mid-season episodes and tackling our favorites from some of the other different types of trilogies mm. that there are i'm sure all the, all the tweets are like oh yeah brilliant do this and do, do yeah. the cornetto trilogy or whatever and it's like we, we will talk about those don't mm. worry there's <laughs> yeah. plenty more content oh, there'll be a time. Up, don't worry and absolutely get in touch with us to let us know what uh what you want you want covered as far as those trilogies go what trilogies you like mm. if you can think of any trilogies of this kind that we've missed uh let us know how, how do people get in touch with this jack sequelizers on all the social medias twitter <laughs> instagram all that good stuff it's all e's and s's because we're british and it's a pun on the word sequel not the word equal <laughs> because obviously it is <laughs> uh if you have a longer more particular query or question or suggestion you can email us sequelizers at gmail.com and if you want to get involved and be able to actually like pick films that we cover in main season episodes and 
get picked for our Q&A episodes and stuff like that, you can contribute on Patreon as well, which is patreon.com slash sequelizers there as well. And thank you very much if you do wish to support us. We really appreciate it. And we will continue creating bonus content, more mid-season stuff, and yeah, lots of cool stuff, some merchandise coming up soon as well. Lots of cool stuff in the works yeah. for our dear patrons. And yeah, and cheers to everybody that uh, has supported us so mm. far on Patreon. It's been, yeah, we're really grateful. It's yeah. been amazing to to see, uh, you know, you guys showing your support. So thank you so much for that. It's, it is genuinely flattering. And also it sounds really self-aggrandizing, so I'm sorry. But I always feel kind of bad. We've only posted at this point a few bits and pieces for the like behind the scenes sort of stuff like the outtakes and various bits and pieces. But I feel bad for those who don't have access to it because they're not patrons. <laughs> I'm like, this is really good stuff. <laughs> I can't share it online because it's not for them. But the, oh, it's The great. outtakes are fucking hilarious, yeah. people. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're, the they're, things you miss. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the things that we sequelizers talk about off air. Yeah. Sequelizers after dark. <laughs> it, it is. It is sequelizers after dark. So many oddities. So much fun. So you're welcome and join in on the fun if you can. Indeed, indeed. If you want to join in on your fun, Matt, how can they do that on the internet? <laughs> there is no fun. Oh. There is only the desolate wasteland of Manchuria. <laughs> don't, 11 hours of misery. Can I just say, don't don't encourage Matt to get people to join in on his fun on the internet. My fun on the internet is perfectly legal, but also highly frowned upon. <laughs> um, I, look at me. I mean, If I came out of an alleyway and said, do you want some fun? <laughs> I'd be a villain in the story immediately. He's a tall, bald man with a devil beard, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Hashtag grey area. I mean, wasn't it online not a little while ago someone compared me to a, someone from an HP Lovecraft game? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. You're a Cthulhu video game protagonist. Yeah. What you are. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the main cast of Hellboy. <laughs> <the first> one. <laughs> so yeah, if you want to find out all the things I can talk about and do and things and yada, 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 you can go to the social medias and look for Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You could go to the Red Right Hand, like UK, to read my reviews of films. Uh, you can go to cheesemit.com to see the films I make and you can converse with me and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll tell you some things. He will. Yeah. Can confirm. I got a, I got a big backlog of things that... Uh, Honorable mention, so I'm, I'm good for the talk. And then I'll block you. <laughs> Speaking of the talk, how do people talk to you on the interwebs, Mr. Matum? Um, trivia underscore lad is the most straightforward way on Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm chat about anything. Um, and then uh, I write a, a lot of the stuff that I write goes on timplusalex.com, which I run with my friend uh, Alex Spencer, and we write about... Uh, pop culture in general. We do a lot of stuff on the MCU movies, which we're going back through and rewatching. Uh, right, you cover comics and stuff as well. Comics and, and Wicked stuff. and Divine and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. As well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, tw- Twitter's probably the easiest way to reach me. Mr. Plow, how about you? Hi, I'm Alec underscore Plowman on Twitter. That's P L O W M A N, and you can go to my website, alecplowman.com, if you want to know a bit about me and what I do the, and who the I am. Thoroughly and consistently up to date. Mm. It is up to date now. I'll have you know. I, that's yeah, Sorted. that's the joke. Done. <laughs> Never have to touch it again. Not accurate at time of release. Actually, the front page is just like a code that puts in today's date. <laughs> what date is it, Alec Plowman? Just today's date followed by. Fuck you, I did it. <laughs> we can go to like, um, should I wear blackface for Halloween.com and it's just a big no. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. What about you, Jack? Where can people look up your Skirt. filthy, filthy business on the internet? Ooh. 
Uh, I don't have an up-to-date website. I let my domain slide the other day because I don't need a website, really. Who cares? What was your domain website? JLWG. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was something really raunchy. So, oh, Could so somebody uh, listeners, if you want to go and snap that up off <laughs> and sell it back to me. Uh, or for... redirect it to something yeah. uh, appropriate. Wrestling boy. <laughs> have a redirect to Alec Plumdog. <laughs> <laughs> I might do that now. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord, good Lord. Well, uh, yeah, I am JLW Chambers on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I write comics. I podcast occasionally about other things like wrestling and comics. And yeah, I'm in a band with Alec. We're called Monster City. We play heavy fucking metal. Forgot to plug that shit. He sings. I play bass and occasionally sing as well. I also do Christopher Lambert impressions between songs just for shits and giggles. (laughs) <laughs> we'd like we'd to thank you for coming to the show ladies and gentlemen we've never incorporated that into our banter have we like because yeah i'm behind the curtain on stage alec and i are the ones that are kind of at the front doing the like back and forth between songs chat you are the loud especially, boys especially when alec just drops guitars for no reason that did happen <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't for no reason it was because of improperly applied strap uh-huh yeah <laughs> that's yeah. what i'm going with good excuse um, good excuse uh yeah um, I think the reason we haven't done more of that banter is, do you remember that one time where we were on stage and I started doing Muppet impressions? I don't, oh yes. Nobody God. in the audience had a clue what I was talking about, <laughs> except for Jack, who thought it was hilarious. Which, I, I doubled over laughing and the audience was just staring at us like, like play so like, metal. Which like, fucking Muppet would you, were you doing? I was kind of doing my Kermit the Frog. That's, that's I like I was, identifiable. Yeah. How did nobody get it? I was just To yeah, fucking doing... metal kids who are there just to see metal. Yeah, I was just... You do like if you do like a Tom Araya from Slayer impression, they're like, yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, we got Kermit, and then like, hi, you frog. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's Tom Araya. It's not easy being green. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> up the star. Oh, please work on a metal version of Rainbow Connection. <laughs> done and done. What are the so many songs gotcha. about Rainbow? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for your earbuds and earbud wearing listeners. That's metal life. You, you, yeah, that's metal for you. And I guess on that note, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you very soon when we return with the rest of season four. Oh, it's going to be good. Yay! That was what? terrible. <laughs> I know, that was my God. I shot my throat from doing the <laughs> I metal thought that was an old... He basically just went... <laughs> I would assume Tom from that's Slayer, what uh, uh, Peregrine Took would have sounded like if he <laughs> fallen down the well. Throw yourself in next time. Billy, you're boy. the Pippin of the group, Alec. Fuck you all. Mm.